Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Jason Russell are principals of Resolve Asset Management. Due to industry regulations, they will not discuss any of Resolve's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by the principals are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Gestalt University. My name is Rodrigo Gordillo, Managing Partner at Resolve Asset Management, and today's special guest is none other than Larry Suedro. When asked about his past, what Larry really wanted was to work with the New York Yankees. That dream died when CBS sold the Yankees to George Steinbrenner on January 4, 1973. But luckily, another door opened at the same time that would forever change the trajectory of Larry's life. As CBS was selling the Yankees, the collapse of the Bretton Woods Agreement had unleashed a maelstrom of volatility in the foreign exchange markets, which caused a great deal of trouble for U.S. corporations with foreign operations. Corporate treasury departments were rudderless and needed people with brand new skill sets to manage the new world order. Larry was in the right place at the right time. Larry learned fast, and over the decade following the collapse of the Bretton Woods Agreement, he led some of the largest treasury and FX operations in the world to manage their FX risk with completely novel instruments like currency and interest rate swaps. Then he moved on to mortgages and was one of the progenitors of the multi-trillion dollar securitized mortgage business. In the mid-1990s, Larry was ready to retire from finance and settle into a university teaching gig, but he was approached by a group of planners starting an RIA firm and invited to spearhead the investment side of the business. Fama and French had published a seminal paper on the cross-section of stock returns in 1993, and by 1995, David Booth had launched an asset management firm to commercialize their ideas, Dimensional Fund Advisors. With the courage and confidence earned from cutting his teeth at the vanguard of two major financial industry innovations, Larry had the conviction to embrace the academically-backed factor approach from the outset. Over the next couple of decades, Larry would go on to write over a dozen books making the case for disciplined, academic approach to investing, and this firm would grow into one of the largest independent advisory firms in the country. Larry is obsessed with academic finance. He talked at length about the factor zoo, and he described the process he uses to identify the factors that are most likely to continue to produce strong excess returns in the decades to come. The low beta factor came under scrutiny with Larry expressing a healthy skepticism. Larry observed that low beta returns have been regime dependent with low beta outperforming when it loads on value characteristics, but underperforming when it loads on growth characteristics. The low beta factor portfolio currently loads on growth characteristics. Larry prefers to own quality in value stocks and lower portfolio beta by lowering total equity exposure. In this episode, Resolve CIO Adam Butler and Larry discuss the pitfalls of single factor strategies because they often load negatively on other premia. Larry shared his story of discussing how to introduce momentum into the DFA value oriented portfolios. He describes how they conceded by holding onto value companies that had moved out of the typical value range so long as they had exhibited positive momentum. This has been a substantial contributor to DFA's performance in many products since it was introduced. 
It is often the case that value strategies are short momentum stocks or quality stocks and vice versa. Larry describes ways in which thoughtful portfolio construction can lead to much more effective long-term performance. Larry emphasized how important it is to stay up on the literature because the structure of the markets and our understanding of them change over time. He uses the example of book-to-market as a classic value screen, but how this metric has become less useful over time as developed economies move from a mostly industrialized base to a service orientation. Today, so much of the value companies is in brand names and technologies, which aren't recognized in the balance sheet. He presents a highly counterintuitive case for companies that would have traditionally been considered unattractive, but that have outperformed the market by a wide margin. This conversation turned to how factor strategies performed in 2018, a diversification catastrophe. Larry highlights a common conversation that he's been having with clients who have been protesting that they don't have decades for their portfolio to produce long-term benefits of diversification. He points out why this type of thinking is exactly backwards and presents some shocking material demonstrating just how risky it is to put all of your eggs in one equity basket. Larry believes investing should be founded on three core principles, but we'll let him explain what they are and why they're so important. This conversation with Larry is a treasure trove of practical realities about markets and investing. It's highly recommended and we hope you enjoy it. So... Larry, we were just chatting about the fact that you published your first book. What was the exact year that you... I wrote the book beginning in 1996. It took two years and it came out in 1998. Right. So it's now 21 years ago. And 17 books later and several editions. Yeah, 15 original books, two second versions. And 2005, I updated the original only guide you'll ever need to winning investment strategy. Yep. And then uh, I'd written uh, Reducing the Risk of Black Swans. And then last year, we updated that because we had a lot of financial innovation, the introduction of alternatives that yep. were previously only available to hedge funds mm-hmm. and the expenses that go with it. Stone Ridge and AQR have introduced not cheap, but much lower than hedge fund costs that make these liquid alternatives and provide us with access to new and unique sources of risk and return that I think dramatically cut the tail risk for people who have the ability to take illiquidity risk and earn a premium for that. And since most of these are investments which are tax inefficient, you're going to own them in your IRA account. And even at age 90, most people don't know the R&D is not even 10%, and you can get 20% of these assets out in any one year for most of them. And the AQR funds are daily liquid, so yep. there's no problem there. So there's an opportunity to pick up almost a free lunch in the sense of if you know you don't need all of your assets, most people of wealth can take 5, 10, 15, 20% of their assets and make them illiquid and earn a premium. That's what the Harvards and the Yales have been doing for decades. Exactly. You're getting paid to give up liquidity. Yeah. It's a natural risk for me. Exactly. So I want to go all the way back to mid-90s, early 90s, when you transitioned away from your banking career and into wealth. So I'm curious because you've taken a stand on alternative sources of risk premia for going on a couple decades now, mm-hmm. back when you started talking about these and actually implementing these strategies in client portfolios, these would have been thought of as relatively exotic 
yeah. approaches, right? So it took quite a bit of courage, I think, at the time. What gave you the courage and conviction to take that leap? I think there's a good story here that's really helped me. I think of myself as one of the luckiest people on the planet in terms of timing, of being in the right place. I almost feel like the character in that movie Zelig, uh, to some degree, who is always in these important points in history. He's popping up. I went to school to be a security analyst and portfolio manager, which is kind of ironic because I'm now sort of the antichrist <laughs> of <laughs> traditional that security analysis. Uh, traditional yes. security analysis. And I got out of school in 73. I graduated at the top of my class from one of the better MBA programs in the country in NYU. And I couldn't get a job because Wall Street had collapsed. Right. And we had seen the end of the fixed brokerage commission era. So commissions were collapsing and the stock market had crashed. Investment banks were hiring people with 10, 20 years experience for not much more than you were having to pay an MBA right out of school. Yeah. So I ended up going for an interview because I was going to get married and needed a job. I was waiting to hear from a couple of investment banks at the time, but I said, I've got to get a job. So I decided I'd go to try to get a job. I had one offer from IBM to be a computer salesman. I know nothing about computers and mm-hmm. didn't then either. But CBS was interviewing on campus at NYU and CBS owned the Yankees. And I was a diehard Yankee fan. I said, I don't care if I'm going to drive a bus. I'm going to see if I can get a job with the Yankees, right? So I get on, dressed up, put on my suit to go for the interview, get on the train, open my New York Times, and there's the headlines. It says CBS sells the Yankees. So I said, all right, I'm all dressed up. I might as well go to the interview. I go in there. Eventually, I get offered a job there in their accounting area. And I, I don't want to be an accountant and everything. But the day before I was about to take the job offer from IBM, I got a call from this young guy named Don Gull, who was a brand new assistant treasurer international at CBS. Now, CBS had hired him away from international paper. He was brought over by their new chairman, a guy named Arthur Taylor, who was taking over from Bill Paley famous guy. And why did they need him? Because we had just had the era of floating exchange rates. Brenton Woods had collapsed and nobody knew anything but managing foreign exchange risk. And he called me up and said, Larry, I'd love to talk to you. Everyone gave you rave reviews. I need somebody to work with me. I told him, I said, I have to give IBM an answer. I can come down today and if works, great. And he said, great. I got on the subway that day (laughs) I called IBM and said, I have to wait till Monday. I'll give you my answer on Monday. Met the guy. Turns out he was the protege of the chairman. Exciting new area. Said, all right, what the heck? And I took the job. Well, two years later, so that was sort of my first revolution. I'm helping to manage all of the foreign exchange risk and interest rates are going crazy. Absolutely. Double what an digits. incredible time to come into that yeah. business for rates and currencies. And so I'm meeting all of the top bankers and economists and my <laughs> training was in economics and finance. So I was loving it. Two years later, Citicorp called me up and they offered me a job. They were just forming an international finance consulting unit. I was all of 23 years old, but two years of experience in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And so they hired me 
to do that, and I joined them, and I worked with a great team there. And then, two years later, they decided to open up an office in San Francisco, and a couple of very senior people turned down the job. I'm 25, I think I was the youngest vice president ever at the time at Citicorp, because those senior people turned down the job, they offered it to me. I went out to run a foreign exchange trading room. I had never traded a day in my life. <laughs> I had to run and fund an offshore bank and manage the interest rate risk, never done that, uh, and advise some of the largest multinational corporations in the world on managing all kinds of financial risk. And I'm 25. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> so then, while that happened, and I'd never managed people, I had to go build the team and manage all that. Then what happened was Citicorp and Solomon Brothers became the big innovators in a whole new revolution of what became known as weapons of mass financial destruction. These derivatives to hedge interest rates, ceilings, floors, collars, swaps, all this stuff, and also on foreign exchange rates and helping companies manage these risks. And the SNL industry was blowing up. And mm -hmm. so that was the second big revolution in finance that I was involved with. It was really just Citicorp and Solomon Brothers were the only two players at that time. So I did that for about eight years. And then my boss left Citicorp, went to Citicorp homeowners and called me up and said, Larry, mortgages are the hot new thing. Right. They had just issued the first private mortgage-backed security. Lou Ranieri had worked with them, Solomon Brothers and Citicorp. It was only Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac at that yep. time. So he called me up and said, Larry, come join me. And I'm all of 35 and time to do something different. <laughs> so there was a third big revolution. We became the biggest issuer of private mortgage-backed securities. And then I left to join Prudential Home Mortgage as vice chairman. I was in charge of credit, interest rate risk, funding, liquidity, everything. So I had to manage risk of the largest mortgage company in the country at the time was $45 billion. When I joined the industry 10 years before, a billion was the largest originator. Right. So that was a big revolution. And then the company got sold and I was going to retire and go back and try to teach, uh, find a job you know, at some university uh, as a lecturer and stuff. And then my friends told me what they were doing in this new area of registered investment advisors giving advice and they were financial planners but they didn't know anything about managing money and right. risk and everything and so i said to them look i think we have a great fit here i want to teach i could teach you and all your clients about managing all kinds of financial risks and my undergraduate degree was studying fi corporate finance. It was actually the first corporate finance programs because there was no corporate finance until Sharp and those guys came along in the mid late sixties. And before that corporate finance was in an accounting class, right? right? So this got me back to my roots. And as soon as I step in, what happens? Farm and French have just published their papers. Okay, so this is early 90s. This then. was, I joined uh, in 95, so okay. their paper came out in 93. Yep. DFA is introducing their funds in 94. And we go and say, guy, go hear their president. Now we've got to adopt this. This is the right strategy. It all makes sense. And so that was the fourth big revolution, just coincidences, timing, being in the right place, uh, CBS owning the Yankees, <laughs> you know mortgage industry took off. So I was very lucky. And I think 
the combination of those experiences has really given me a lot of unique perspectives, enabled me to think about managing risks in different ways yep. than others, learning never to treat the unlikely as impossible, dealing with the peso problems yes. and, and those kinds of things, yep. and helping companies avoid all kinds of mistakes of overconfidence and they're thinking about outcomes in deterministic ways rather than probabilistic ways. Yeah. So all those experiences really helped me and I think have allowed me to contribute by giving back. And that's what I've enjoyed doing. Is and it plunged you into several really key roles where you had to take on enormous responsibility in a brand new field. Yeah. You overcame that and I built great it into a successful... <laughs> Which is great, but then you go into wealth management and there's an explosion, a proliferation of new concepts and new ideas. The group, Fama, and the Booth, right? The head yeah. of DFA. Yeah, David had, Booth. Had commercialized so. these concepts, right? But obviously they were brand new. Nobody had accepted them as yeah, the was. gospel that we've sort of all quasi accepted them as today. And so it was a pretty big leap of faith. It certainly was a leap of faith. I came from the active world. I mean, we were active in managing foreign exchange risk and interest rate. I sold consulting services and market timing strategies. And here's the interesting thing that looking back, I learned. I used to give speeches and forecast economies and interest rates and exchange rates and everything. And when I got a forecast right, of course, I took credit for my brilliant, insightful, and thoughtful sure. analysis. When I got it wrong, I blamed it on some unexpected some event yeah. that nobody could have foreseen. Yeah. At the end of the day, you're a genius or, and just unlucky on occasion. Mm -hmm. Well, eventually, hopefully, smart people recognize that's not what's really but what, going what on. what caused you to recognize that? How did you make that transition? Just over time experiences learned that the evidence, when you read it, there just aren't really many good forecasters. Maybe there's a handful of people in the whole world, and they're hard to identify until after the fact. Yeah, for sure. So just getting back to you've entered this new domain, private wealth, you're going to be the investment arm for this planning organization. You recognize the opportunity that Booth has put together with DFA. And then this factor revolution eventually turns into something absolutely gargantuan. Yeah. And now it's sort of common knowledge. These factors seem to be almost common knowledge. Is there something today that is the sort of analog of that new revolution that you observed, you kind of came into in the early 90s? that takes the same level of courage and conviction today to step into the breach, but there's so much scientific evidence and background supporting it? I can say two things here on this subject, Adam. I don't know if it exactly answers your question, but number one, what I saw in my previous world are investment bankers who create products that can be used for good or evil by just selling stuff to exploit people. I was a consultant in selling products for Citicorp. We worked with a lot of SNLs, for example, and managing their interest rate risk. And I would walk into an SNL who had, say, a 13% mortgage, okay, and they were concerned that they had issued this 13% mortgage and they wanted to lock in their funding costs at, say, 10%, so keep that spread. And so they swapped and created this fixed rate CDs, if you will, 
over, say, a 10 or 15 year period. And I walked in, I said, do you know what Solomon just sold you? The borrower, if rates fall, is going to prepay, and you've just locked in this 10% rate. This is a recipe potentially for disaster. Mm -hmm. But Solomon Brothers and other people who would sell never explained that. Of course not. Right? Because they, in those days, the spreads were huge. Mm -hmm. They were making several percent on transactions, not 10 or 20 basis points. The incentives and, were just so high. Yeah, and that's what we see today. There's a lot of good research on investing and factors that matter. But so many people create garbage products that are just meant to be sold that really have no business being out there. In the literature, you're aware there's probably 600 factors that have been identified. And we know once you get beyond five or something like that, the incremental value can't be anything important. Even right? if they're completely uncorrelated. Yeah, yeah the yeah. marginal benefit it can't, diminishes. It's close to zero. Yeah. And you have the extra expense and the complexity. And we know many of them are subsumed or they're results of data mining and stuff. And so when we wrote our factor book, your complete guide to factor investing. We try to educate the public there and said, out of these 600 factors, how can we protect you from them? Well, we'll give you a systematic way to think about it. Make sure that factor has evidence of persistence, pervasiveness, robustness, implementability, intuitiveness. And then you increase the odds that you're likely to be investing correctly. We could only really identify five. Uh, Some people argue there are others, liquidity you could make a case for, certainly. A lot of people like low beta on there. I'm not a fan of low beta, although I completely understand the logic. But my problem with low beta is it's regime dependent, and that's what's not focused on. No one explains this to people. So we'll just touch on it briefly. Low beta predicts one thing, not two. It does not predict the premium. It predicts low beta. When it's in the value regime, so low beta stocks are cheap relative to the market, it predicts a premium. When it's in the growth regime, which it is now because popularity has caused huge cash flows into it, it predicts negative premiums. Now, you may be willing to accept that negative premium to get that low beta, but you should not expect a premium. And there's better ways, I think, to get the low beta, just lower your equity allocation and take more term risk. Low beta is pretty well explained, I think, by value and term risk, which is, by the way, REITs are very similar in that way. It's more small value and term risk explain REITs. REITs really aren't needed in a portfolio in terms of treating them as a separate asset class. So just to translate or make sure that everybody's sort of tracking what you're talking about, I think what you're saying is that when low beta portfolios load also on the value factor, then they predict positive performance. But when they load negatively on the value factor, in other words, they load on the growth factor, then they predict negative. On, so negative low beta growth. becomes a free lunch when it's in the value side, right? You're getting less risk and a higher expected return. Today, that's not true. I just wrote a piece which is going to appear on uh, Wes Gray's Alpha Architect site, which I think is the best website for those of us in the industry who want to stay on top of 
the researching. Yeah. And Jack Vogel does a great job every week. He's got a short video. I watch it religiously, trying to put these into plain, ordinary English, what's behind the papers. So one of the things I talk about is this curse of popularity. Whatever is popular has generally god-awful returns. There's one exception. You probably know what that is. Nope. Tell me. I'm sure you do. It's called momentum. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. Popular stocks are high momentum stocks, right. and that's the one anomaly in finance that is not only an anomaly from a risk perspective, there's really no good risk story there, yep. although there's crash risk with momentum. Yep. There's no good risk story behind the phenomena. But all the other anomalies in finance are addressed by this popularity factor. There's a wonderful new book by Roger Ibbotson and Thomas Idazek, I think his name, and two others that's available on the internet. It's published by the CFA. And it's this, I call it the curse of popularity. Whatever's popular has god-awful returns. Right, they describe popularity using several different characteristics and they use that as a risk model. That's exactly yeah. right. It's, yeah. They have built this PAP, P-A-P-M model, I right. think. So I then wrote up what the literature had found going back to their original work in the 80s on this subject. But then I wrote a companion short piece asking the question, what's popular today? And it's not a big surprise because of the 08 bear market. What's popular today is low beta and quality. Right. So I said, let's check. And I looked at the two largest ETFs, QUAL and USMV. QUAL, I think, has over 12 billion of assets. And and USMV has like 22 billion, I think, if my memory serves. And both of them look like big growth funds, you know, especially USMV. So now, yeah, you may have safety in them and you may be willing to sacrifice returns if that's what you're looking for. But you should no longer expect what has historically been good sized premium. The quality premium has been about three and a half percent. And it's there is no risk story to that. It has to be a purely behavioral story because quality companies have low standard deviation of low earnings, leverage, low leverage, IROE. low operating layout. Yeah. There cannot be a risk story there. And so now everyone may have discovered it, right? But it has been persistent and pervasive and we know there are limits to arbitrage. But the amazing thing is quality holds up or has in large stocks where there aren't those limits to arbitrage. Absolutely. And the low beta or low vol is the other one. So I think the strategy is fine. You want to own quality in value. So you screen out the junk out of value, those lottery stocks. Yep. You screen out what are called the value traps and you greatly improve the value premium. And I would avoid low beta. The way to get low beta is just lower your equity allocation and tilt towards the other factors to drive your returns up. That's the way I Well, it sort of introduces this idea of, it's one thing to have a good understanding of, of the factor literature, and it's a whole other thing to have a good understanding about how to implement those factors in strategies, right? Because all too often you've got these single factor products that emphasize a certain factor that may be a target factor, but has all of these unintended bets, right? So the quality and low beta funds that you're describing, clearly they do target this low beta or quality factor, but they're also short some of the other factors that we know are 
so highly predictive of future returns, right? right. There's short value. Right. So how do you think about these multi-factor approaches, multi-factor products? It's a great question, and it goes back in the literature. In value is actually short momentum. Exactly. Unless you do something about it. And we actually were one of the people who was pushing Fama in French to begin incorporating momentum. My version of the story, I don't know if it's 100% accurate because I can't read people's minds, but Fama was adamant about not incorporating momentum because there is no risk story. Yep. And I believe it was French who finally convinced them to say, we have to stop banging our heads against the wall. We don't have to target momentum, but we can screen out negative momentum right. and reduce the risk. We don't have to be buying things as they enter the value regime. Now, what Fama and French never, I would say, admitted, if you will, is that they were always benefiting from momentum, but wouldn't say it. And right. that came about because they very intelligently improved on indices, which have to sell something soon as it leaves an index. What they did to reduce transactions costs and improve tax efficiency was introduce a buy and hold range. Well, if you have a buy and hold range, you're getting momentum as small stocks become larger and value stocks become growthy and they migrate. You're holding them for a little while longer yeah. and that's momentum. And so they were benefiting, but now they were screening out negative momentum. So a growth stock that's dropping into value and crashing, they used to buy and they found out doing the research that was acting as a drag. So they and that's been a pretty substantial them. positive attribution for them over the years. And what that did is instead of having a negative, say a DFA fund might have loaded, say, 0.6 on value and minus 0.4 on momentum, still gave you an above market return. But if you could go from maybe 0.6 on value to 0.5 on value and drive momentum to zero, right. you end it's up a with a much rate. better yeah. and less tracking error to the market as well, which we know is a problem for many investors. So we have always thought about how do you incorporate these things into one portfolio? And too many investors make the mistake of thinking of each of them in isolation, like an asset class. Yep. And that makes no sense because if you have value on one fund and momentum in the other, the value fund could be buying a stock when the momentum fund is shorting it. So you got two trades, two expenses, and no position. Exactly. So you need to incorporate some way of doing it, either with weighting schemes, which I think are a very good way to address it. I know APR does that. Or you can use negative screens so you don't get the positive momentum from that. But buy and hold ranges give you some of that. You get rid of the negative momentum. Right. The other thing I think is important is something I've been looking at and I just wrote a piece on as well in the literature. You really have to stay up on the literature because just like anything else, the world changes. 50 years ago, companies were mostly manufacturing companies. And so book to market gave you a good measure of value. Today, so much of the value of companies are in brand names, technology, which unless you acquire it, isn't on the balance sheet. Mm -hmm. And so you could buy companies, let's say even a Coca-Cola, you tell me the brands aren't worth anything, right? And so that has value. So book to market especially ignores companies with negative equity. 
And I think most people would be shocked when they look at the data. They say, why do I want to buy a company with negative equity? Not only have negative equity companies make money, but they outperform the market by a significant amount. Yep. And so if you screen them out because you're looking at book to market, you miss a real value effect. And so you need to look at things like cash flow to enterprise value, uh, price earnings. And I think the higher you go up on uh, earnings where there's less ability to manipulate things, the, cleaner the, the better. Yeah, you yeah. get a cleaner signal. So one of the reasons we chose to work with Bridgeway was one, by being smaller, we could get deeper size and value than DFA, which had gotten much larger. But they also moved away from price to book back in 2011 and incorporate other value metrics. DFA finally threw in the towel in 2013 when they began incorporating Robert Novi Marx's work on profitability. Right. So the world is changing. You have to stay on top of the literature. Old strategies may no longer work. And so part of my job, of course, is making sure we're following the strategy, the research, and taking us wherever it leads to boldly go exactly. as to use the stock track term. So 2018 is a really good example of we all think about diversification, not just in terms of asset class diversification, but to what extent can we add these other uncorrelated, persistent, pervasive, intuitive, economically relevant factor premia as well to portfolios to stabilize and have less reliance on pro-cyclical kind of equity market beta. 2018, sort of a diversification <laughs> catastrophe, right? Yeah. Like it's just this unusual situation where almost all classical and alternative premia all struggled at the same time. It's been actually a pretty tough decade capped by a very tough year for diversification in general. I mean, what should investors learn yeah. from that? What are you taking away from that? Is it informing how you're positioning going forward at all? Yeah, I think it's a really important topic, Adam. I just finished drafting a new speech, which I hope I'll be giving in the next few years and conferences like this. I got to thinking about it in discussions with clients. I call it, what do you do when an investment strategy performs poorly? And you may have read the piece I wrote yep. for advisor perspectives. And so people say, for example, well, Larry, you know, you value stocks have performed poorly for the last decade. You know, why do we need to invest in value? And what I point out is the following. First of all, we have decades of evidence of value that goes back 90 plus years. So it's pervasive. It has survived various economic regimes. More importantly, or in addition, we have evidence of its pervasiveness. Buying what's cheap relative to what's expensive has outperformed all around the world in virtually every country in the world and across asset classes, whether it's stocks, bonds, commodities, or currencies. So what you have to understand is if there is a risk story behind any factor, let's assume that's the case, then there has to be the risk that it will underperform for a very long period of time. So here's the pushback I get. Larry, I'm retired. I don't have 10 years or 20 years to wait. And I said, that's exactly backwards thinking. And it's backwards thinking because why do you want to put all of your eggs in one basket when it might be the one basket that blows up? 
And what I point out is what I think shocking material to most people. I mean, I was even surprised to see this until I looked at the data. So we actually have three periods of 13 years or longer where the S&P underperformed totally riskless T-bills. The longest period is 17 years, from 1966 to 82, slight underperformance. We have 15 years from 29 to 43, and we have 13 years from 2000 to 2012. Now, if my math is right, that's 45 years, adding them up, out of the 93 years of data we have. That's almost half of the time you're going these long periods. Why anyone would want to load up a portfolio and a total market portfolio that's 60, 40 stocks and bonds, most people, if you ask them, they think they've got 60% of the risk in stocks or market beta. And it's not true. It's like 90% because stocks are so much more volatile. So what I then show them is in those three periods when market beta was negative, in each of those cases, the size and value premiums were huge, 4 to 5% in each of those periods. Right. Now, we just went through a period where value did poorly, but by the way, it was down maybe 2% a year, not 5 mm -hmm. And by the way, internationally, value outperformed in that period. So there was no harm if you globally tilted, but people focus in the U.S. because that's what they're familiar with. Yeah. So what I tell people is this. I believe an investment strategy should be based upon these core principles. And this is based upon all of my experience in, in life. And this will be my talk tomorrow. It's all laid out in my 2018 Black Swans. Uh, but first, the basic premise should be that you should have a belief that while markets are not perfectly efficient, we know that isn't true and likely will never be true just because limits to arbitrage exist and people are humans and they make behavioral mistakes. But you should operate as if they are highly efficient. If you believe that to be the case, the second premise should then follow from the first, which is then all risky assets should have similar risk-adjusted returns. If not, cash is going to flow, arbitrageurs will move money out of the high expected returning into the high expected returning and out of the low, drive prices into a new equilibrium. If you believe that, then why do you want to concentrate in any one factor and make that bet? To me, the logic is simple. You should invest in as many unique sources of risk as you can identify. And we think that there are the three or four or five big ones in equities. And then you can diversify, of course, those factors, of course, asset classes. Yep. So we use the AQR style premium or risk premium funds. And then there are three other sources of risk, which are very logical. Each of them has or two of them have some correlation to the equity premium or economic cycle risk, so you have to understand that, but they're not perfectly correlated. And one of them has no correlation, and that's reinsurance. Reinsurance had a pretty shitty year in 17, a really bad year in 17, not a good year in 18. But guess what? What happens when 
insurance companies have losses. What do you think happens to the premiums? They raise them. They so, raise yeah. them. <laughs> what people fail to understand is this. In 2017, the fund we used had a zero loss estimated return of 17%. Now, no one expects zero losses. Sure. You might have expected, say, 8% average. By the way, the median is above the mean because you have most years you get little losses, so the fund will make maybe 11 or 12%, yeah. but in a really bad year, it could lose 15 yeah. You get a an 8% average, yeah. right? You get a strong negative skew. So most of the years, you're going to get a little more than 8 but the average is 8 Well, now, because of the losses and the fact that the riskless rate has gone up, so they collect premiums day one, put it in, say, a one-year treasury, very liquid instrument, that's gone up two and a quarter percent. Mm-hmm. So that alone pushed it over 17. And the fact that premiums have jumped, California fire premiums, even if you can buy it, are already up over 20 percent, likely headed higher. The Japanese and uh, Far East typhoon premiums are going to jump, we estimate, 10, 15 percent. U.S. hurricane gets, and that's negotiated in March, April. U.S. hurricane risk is June. That's going to go up. We think it's going to jump to about 21% for quota shares. Risk. So if you subtract historical 8%, maybe you think risk is higher. It's even 10 Well, that's a pretty good return for an uncorrelated asset with a vol historically of 10. Especially given the expected returns on traditional asset classes right now. Uh, lower. Yeah. Then a second one is alternative lending, which makes consumer loans, small business loans, and corporate loans to prime borrowers. Here you clearly have some economic cycle risk. Yeah. But it's not like buying junk bonds. In 2008, prime loans on credit cards were about breaking even. So that's with 10% unemployment, the right. worst recession ever. Here, because this fund uses a little bit of leverage to try to recover its costs, we think the fund might lose six, seven, maybe 8% in a really bad year. But that's a hell of a lot better than minus 40, 50, or 60. Yeah. On the other hand, and we think the expected return is in the six to seven range, which is about the same as stocks for the US anyway. And you got a five vol. Right. So that's a sharp of over one. Now, there are other risks. You don't have liquidity. And these loans are the kind of things the Yales and Harvards of the world have been investing in for decades, but consumers couldn't. And you can't do it in a mutual fund form because you can't make a three or five year loan and have daily liquidity. Right. That's where this interval structure came. And the last is also a very natural premium, but it's going to correlate with equity risk some, is the variance risk premium, which we know has been massively starry. People hate volatility. 90% of puts and calls expire worthless. And so we think this fund has a 8 9% expected return. And last year, when volatility was spiking in every asset class, right? Oil, stocks were going crazy. Yep. Bonds were jumping all over, right? So it had a bad year. Yeah. And people flee. And guess what? What happens to the premiums? They're now much higher. And the fund is off to a very good start. I think so far this year, it's up over 2%. 
for a fund. Pretty uh, awesome ball collapse yeah. in the first yeah. month and or so. so. And I think that fund likely has a 9%, 10% return expected now. But you have to live with those bad years and know even sometimes they're going to correlate. Right. Even uncorrelated assets correlate like reinsurance did. Yep. The interesting thing, though, with, for example, with alternative lending is you could have bear markets in stocks and no increase in unemployment. Think of the long-term credit crisis in the summer of 98. Stocks dropped 25% that quarter. Unemployment didn't go anywhere. Right. 2011, we had big crises and unemployment didn't go anywhere. These things would have returned very nicely, mm-hmm. right? Last year, stocks crashed horribly in the fourth quarter and unemployment went down. Right. You know, so we think that fund is likely to crank out consistently. I mean, it's had almost zero vol for the last several years. And it was facing a headwind last year because interest rates went up one and a quarter or 1%. Yep. And it still earned 5%. Yeah, it's a pretty low duration asset. Yeah, it's 1.3 years. Yeah, right. Yeah. So how much file do you think you're going to get there, mm-hmm. right? So, and by the way, none of these assets have any inflation risk. So you're not only reducing the vol, we think each of them is in the 5 to 10 vol independently because they're uncorrelated. We think an equal weighted portfolio of them has a vol of 5. Right. One quarter of that is stocks, and we think it has an equity-like kind of return. Uncar- but you need the discipline to stay the course and not worry about, you know, reinsurance had a bad year, it's awful, you know, global warming. And no, the scientists at the reinsurance companies are totally unaware that global warming right. is an issue. <laughs> and it's, they're not pricing that risk in. They're just dummies who are pissing away their capital, right? Clearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously. So I had somebody articulate what I think is a really neat metaphor for the evolution of psychology for investors as they face these types of experiences. And he articulated it as each increment in time when you're underperforming whatever your emotional benchmark is causes regret. And the accumulation of each of those slices in time, the accumulated sum of that is doubt. (laughs) And then on the other side, there's a bank that is faith, right? right? So as long as faith continues to outweigh doubt, then an investor will stay the course, right? right? So I think you've done such a great job of creating this or cultivating and perpetuating this faith so that investors have a maximum probability of sticking with these long-term premia through the doubt and through the regret in order to realize a long-term return. Well, I think that's a great analogy. And to me, there's one key to having faith. That's knowledge. And what's sad in our country, despite its importance, money, I think, is probably the third or fourth most important things in people's life after your family, your health, for some, maybe their religion. And it's not money, of course, itself, but what it can do for you, a nice, safe, secure retirement, nice vacations, whatever it is, having a good education for your kids. But unless you get an MBA in finance, I don't know anyone who's taken a single course in capital markets theory. So how are they going to learn these theories and stuff when it's what's sad or compounding the problem is the average American would rather 
spend uh, hours glued to some reality TV show. They're reading books like mine or Wes Gray and Jack Vogel's or John Vogel's, William Bernstein. Those books don't sell. They'd rather read some Holocaust romance or watch Game of Thrones when maybe it's entertaining, but it's not going to improve your financial condition. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, your corpus is absolutely mountainous, and uh, it's a huge gift, I think, to most investors. And really appreciate you sharing your the evolution of your own experiences and how your thinking's evolved and what your current thinking is and how people should continue to think about their own investments. And just thanks again for sitting here. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to be with you anytime. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.